Oh, hello. Have you heard that there was once a number between 12 and 13? It's not there anymore. I don't know why. Do you? <laughs> I do know that 13 is the number of mortality. And the sun, which is numbered 13? <laughs> the night side of the gray, obviously. An emptiness. An endless, eternal nothing. No light, no dark, no definition. There you will find neither love, nor hate, nor light, nor death. Nor the light of any sun. It is, as they say, the flat surface upon which the shadow falls. Let us not, then, call this our thirteenth encounter with each other. It bodes ill. <laughs> Greetings, Vizlay. Thank you for welcoming me into your minds and lives once again. It's been a while, no? Last we spoke, the snow moon was just new. We've since watched the worm moon, the pink moon, and the flower moon rise and fall. Strawberry now prepares her regal entrance. I am sorry. I did not mean to close the doors of this cellar for all this time. The gray is alluring sometimes and dangerous. This is a show about the creative process, which includes the deserts and the false starts. So if you're interested in knowing what happened, stick around at the end of the episode, and I'll tell you about it. Perhaps it will lend you some light. I don't want to overshadow our special guests, though, so for the moment I'll just say that my audio for the following two interviews recorded like this. <laughs> So my side of both interviews was utterly unintelligible. Although my guest's audio recorded perfectly, a one-sided conversation is a strange thing indeed. So my sincerest apologies to you, Kate, and Jim for not reflecting our conversations in their best light. Nevertheless, I've done what I could. I created a tulpa and bent it to my sorceress will, asking it to make sense of the records I retained, and even step in when necessary in my absence. The result is essentially a pair of edited monologues with occasional digital interjections from the tulpa, only where necessary for clarity. Anyhow, now, on with the show. A double feature. First, you'll be hearing from Kate Taylor, who has, and this will blow your mind, constructed a language whole cloth for use within the setting of Numenera. You'll get to hear some sea-speak tonight, as well as dig into its historical and cultural context in the Rayskel Keys, far to the west of the Steadfast. Then, I'll be inviting Jim, yes, that Jim, Ryan, into the cellar to talk about his recent experiments with Twitch as a creative medium, as well as the seemingly endless wellspring of projects pouring forth from his mind. I'm especially grateful, and this is wildly appropriate for episode 12 and 7 eighths, for Jim's honesty in sharing about getting going again when creation has become wearying and difficult. Oh, one other thing, there's a delightful bit of synergy in presenting these two interviews back-to-back. -back. 
Because in addition to being brilliant creators and warm, generous humans, Kate and Jim have possibly the most radiant, wholehearted, room-filling laughs in the history of The Secret Cellar. And you, dear friends, get to hear them both this evening. First, let's talk to Kate about C-Speak. Vizsla's Call, Part 1. Greetings, Visley. My name is Anais, a talpa created by the proprietor in order to reconstruct your previous conversation with him. Good morning, I'm doing very well. It's evening. Always evening. Also, your state of being is irrelevant for the report I must provide the master. Now, although the question seems frivolous to me, I have been compelled to ask, what are you drinking tonight? I am drinking a cup of Earl Grey. It's an excellent drink. I also prefer my lords in liquid form. Okay, next question. What kind of nerd are you? Please be exhaustive in your response. Yes, so I am a language nerd for sure. I'm a linguistics major in school, and I have been working on a constructed language, or conlang as we call them, to play with uh, Numenera. Actually, I suppose I've only recently come to linguistics. I've been in college for a while now, kind of just trying to figure out what I wanted to do, what I wanted to study. I've had so many majors, cannot even tell you. (laughs) But I've always been a huge Tolkien fan. So that has sort of always been on the back burner in the back of my mind, like, hey, I really find language super interesting and I love Tolkien and his world. And so I've been working in the outdoor industry for a long time and was like, I need something else in my life so that if I break a bone, I don't have no job. (laughs) So I decided to come back to school and do linguistics. And so far, I'm so in love. It is so fun. And what I'm hoping to do eventually is work either in second language acquisition, which is like the process of someone learning a new language and all the things about that and like how to make it better. Or something that's really fascinating to me is language preservation. So working with, you know, endangered languages with the speakers that still speak it fluently and helping them record it and preserve it or revitalize it if that if that's possible. I'll be going to Ireland for seven months next year and hopefully coming back speaking Irish. We'll see. <laughs> but they've obviously got a government-sponsored language preservation program, which is super fascinating. And along those same lines, the Maori language in New Zealand is extremely fascinating too, because they've got the same thing, like the infrastructure for language revitalization that's actually been super successful there. So I'm so like excited about those efforts that have actually been really successful. You omitted important information from your previous answer. You are not only a language nerd, but also, apparently, an RPG nerd. Explain yourself. At my previous job, I worked at a wilderness therapy. So the clients see a therapist once a week. And you take, I take them backpacking for the rest of the week. We did play D&D out in the Oregon wilderness with some of the clients. And that was probably the most unique and fun tabletop experience I've ever had. <laughs> no tables were involved. <laughs> we did not have dice. <laughs> well, I did a lot of I guess LARPing more when I was in high school and played a little D&D. And then I've done a couple just like 
online D&D games with friends. And then I think Numenera is probably the only one I've played in person, which is funny. <laughs> I've got some friends who are pretty big into the whole Monty Cook games world that live in Ohio, where I have moved back to. And so we got together and they were like, hey, do you guys want to do a one shot famous last words. It's been going on forever. We haven't played in a while, but we started in the spring and then went through the whole spring and then sort of was, were on pause for the summer and we still haven't finished. <laughs> it's winter now. <laughs> Our campaign has actually taken place at sea. So most of it has been on a boat kind of like off the coast of the steadfast. But when I was sort of narrowing down on my language, I decided to go to a location that my character in my one shot has never been to, which is the Rayscale Keys, which is an archipelago. And it's described as having a lot of very diverse, like small cultures, all sort of converging and doing a lot of trade. So as a linguist, that's a really compelling location because that means that there are a lot of languages coming into contact with each other and having some interesting relationships. So I was like, this is where I want to set it because it, it was interesting to me to work with a bunch of islands where there might be, you know, 20 languages on an island that are all in contact with each other. Canonically, there are about 30 languages in the Rayscale Keys. And so mine is only one of 30. We'll see if I get around to making 30. <laughs> so I've only started to think about what it would look like to have a contact with another language because I really just started building C-Speak from the ground up. And the main language in Numenera is called truth. And from looking at some of the words, I can sort of extrapolate what I think that language might look like. And so in the back of my mind, I'm like, how would a language that looks like that interact with a language that looks like mine? Because I think structurally, they're going to be very different but of course, you can still borrow words and have sound changes that happen. It's so cool. <laughs> I require documentation. So it's bit.ly slash cspeak is, is the easy way to get to the website. How did you start to decide what form cspeak should take? Yeah, I guess a lot of the features of this language sprang out of my desire to see things that I had never studied in any language before, because why not? And my background is dabbling mostly in romance languages. And then my main study outside of English has been Spanish. So I kind of went for things that didn't have anything in common with those, but were still very realistic language features. So agglutinating languages are almost like a string of beads. There's a bunch of small little features and they all string together and they don't change form when they string. So you might have a, a super long word that has a bunch of tiny parts, but they're all going to be the same. Like you can separate out the parts. So Japanese is for the most part agglutinative. Korean, a lot of the Austronesian languages. So Maori, Hawaiian, and all of these are languages that I did pull from a bit in looking at my language. I guess verbs don't conjugate per se. There are small pieces that you would add to a verb root to say past tense, future tense, etc. And so in one way, it was pretty easy for me because once I came up with that little piece, I didn't have to worry about how it would change being connected to something else. But one thing that it is very different 
from even English is that when languages inflect, you can sort of reorder the parts somewhat. So the sentence structure is somewhat flexible because it's inflected. So you know what it's saying, you know what that verb is referring to, who's doing it to what. But in C-speak, uh, that all comes from the order because if you have the subject first, every single time, you know that's who's doing the action, but you can't get that from just the verb. So that was something interesting that I had to play with, which is a very strict order. What are the people of the Keys like? How did that influence the language? That was definitely a fun part for me, sort of expanding on the world of the Rayscale Keys. I was imagining that, you know, there's so many small islands, there could essentially be a whole culture that we don't know about yet that I could sort of create <laughs> to go along with my language. And it's not like the language reflects the culture or the culture reflects the language. They're both so intertwined. But a new feature that I also had never worked with before was honorifics in language. So having to think about the culture and how does one think of one's, I guess, rank in the culture compared to someone you're speaking to or about. And so I started there with saying, okay, I want to have honorifics in my language. And then I started thinking, okay, so who is deserving of honor? And as you know, Numenera is a world that's filled with very dangerous and confusing technology and ruins and secrets that the people are sort of just wandering around and dealing with. And so I imagined that living for a very long time would be quite the accomplishment in a world that's sort of full of dangers. So I I built my honorific system around like age and experience, which was fun because then I sort of got to expand on like who is the most honored person who's a little more honored? How do you talk to an equal? So that was really fun. It started helping me grow my idea of what this clan looks like. <laughs> I have a lot of stuff that I've written up about this and I'm nowhere near done. But essentially, the culture is very respectful of elders. The clan is led by the eldest of a matrilineal line. And like her siblings and peers are like the next tier. Then there's the people who work, the people who care for children. And then there's a couple levels of children and adolescents and young adults at different stages and different levels of engagement with the community, which has been really fun to play with and think about how a character at a different level would relate to the people around them. It's not only based on age, but also experience and I guess contribution to the community. So if someone is a master sailor, they've been sailing and fishing and working for the community for a very long time, that they would be honored. And that someone who has, I suppose, achieved an elder status, so is very old and has a lot of wisdom and has perhaps given their whole life to a trade and has now, I guess, retired or the version of retiring, <laughs> um, then they're ultimately given the most honor. What comes next for C-Speak? Well, I think for me, the next step is just building small pieces of language that people other than myself can work into their game without having to know this language inside and out, because it just adds this cool dimension to being able to play and like i'm imagining my character just like muttering something to their self like oh gosh these idiots that i'm working with or oh wow that's like really expensive i don't want to buy that or you know just having little comments in a group that does not speak c speak i don't know
know if I was nervous to show this to people, but I've definitely been having some anxiety around it is that what I've done essentially is build this massive foundation because I've got my lexicon or it, like a dictionary and I've got my grammar and it's fairly well sorted out all of that. But when people learn a language, they see the walls, which is the sentences. And I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, I have a foundation. And people are like, where are the walls? How do I say this? So when someone asks me, how do I say this? I have to go look it up because I do not have my language memorized. It shares a feature of real human languages in that it's arbitrary. So the words do not, do not correspond to the meaning. So when you say the word pizza, nothing about the words P-I-Z-Z-A mean pizza. So I'm just as in the dark sometimes having to go look up, okay, what did I say that was? My research would not be complete without recording a sample of C-Speak. Okay, so I'll say if I were to have greeted you, I didn't want to throw you for too much a loop, but if I were to have greeted you in C-Speak, <laughs> I would say, So those are basically just two ways of saying literally, I greet you like just you and then the second part being i greet you and your listeners so multiple use <laughs> well i don't know the word for listeners but the the greeting for many <laughs> yes i greet you all i greet you all nishu aleso so that's the the greeting the formal greeting if you just wanted to say hi to someone it would be ah oh and then goodbye is has a fun literal translation. So to say goodbye to a group of people, ni fesi shu echa elilasa apali. And that literally means I want or wish that you sail happily. Goodbye, hello, I hope that you are well when I'm not with you. How can fellow Visley join in or contribute to this great magical working? So I did this language because A, I think it's fun and B, I had the option to get credit in college for making this language. So it's sort of just a labor of love and I'm not really expecting anyone to pay me for doing it. But, you know, I am a college student. So if anyone wants me to be caffeinated while I come up with new languages, I do have a Ko-Fi at Tolkien Trash. <laughs> I've had a couple people go look at the language and then come back and ask me, what did you mean here? Or... Is this the way I would say this? And I love it. It's actually so helpful because <laughs> it helps me go back through and say, is that what I meant? And I also, you know, in the process of creating this language, have been changing things and like standardizing things that I had a couple ways of doing. So feedback is amazing. Having people go look at it and ask me questions or even just ask me how to say something. It, forces me to go through and look at my structures and really think about it. How can people locate you in the newsphere or otherwise establish communication with you? My Twitter hashtag for this is hashtag Numenera language. So I'm hoping I see some more people in there directing some questions and feedback at me. Most of my language stuff, both this and any future, I will probably talk about on my Twitter, which is at Tolkien Elf. I've got a theme going here. <laughs> if I understood what it means to experience emotion, I am sure this would have been a pleasure. It has certainly been informative. I will now file my report with the master. 
Thank you and good evening. All right. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> My Numenera adventuring party is currently trapped deep inside the Jade Colossus near the Black Riage, but I'm already plotting ways to get them sent out to sea just so I have an excuse to spirit them to the Rayskel Keys. <laughs> Next up. Stage actor, podcaster, author, and recently novelist and Twitch streamer Jim Ryan to talk about his journey through all of these mediums and how they connect to his present work. Greetings, Visley. My name is Anais, a talpa created by the proprietor in order to reconstruct your previous conversation with him. Greetings, how's it going? My state of well-being is irrelevant. Although the question seems frivolous to me, I have been compelled to ask, what are you drinking tonight? Oh, um, well, they, they gave me this brown liquid. It's a very fascinating concoction, apparently, of uh, carbonated water, caramel color, aspartame, phosphoric acid, natural and artificial flavors, sodium benzoate, and caffeine, uh, which is good. It's got a, a, a sort of a, a, a sort of a burgundy and white label, and it's it's medicinal. It's it's clearly because uh, it's, it looks like it was prescribed by uh, Doctor Pepper. I, I went up and I told them that I had a prescription from Doctor Pepper, and they just sort of laughed and gave me a bottle of this. So I assume that it is indeed a, a very you know a very good medicine, and uh, also I think there's a bit of vodka in it, so that helps. The master is on record as a scholar of your work. In fact, records show that his earliest exposure to this community was through some dark art called Cyphercast. Cool, no, thank you. That's awesome to hear because I kind of have the opposite or the mirror reaction whenever I hear that. It's like, oh, wow, people are actually listening to the show. <laughs> it's always cool to hear that. I see here that the Order of Makers classifies you as a maker of words. Oh, yes. <laughs> well, the, the thing that I am trying to do as the absolute life career type thing is as a writer. I, I've, I've been wanting to steer toward writing fiction, which I've been trying to do off and on since I was like five years old with various amounts of success. I finally this year actually managed to finish a whole novel. I finished writing like a 90,000 word novel. But uh, in the meantime, something else that I'm starting to do is try to release shorter work online. Primarily, it's going to be through Kindle and other such things. The Canary in the Cage was this first short story that I just put out called Titanic Jocularity, which takes place on the moon of Titan. And it's basically about uh, Restoration Era nobles in space, uh, <laughs> essentially. <laughs> It's sort of a Munchausen pastiche, basically, where the, the narrator tells these incredibly far-fetched adventures that he's been on, and uh, where he does crazy things and just tries to go around being generally fabulous. The Master's purchase records show that he has both downloaded and read your recent novella. Yay! Thank you so much. <laughs> There's going to be a series of those as sort of palate cleansers between the other projects. I'm trying to get into writing novellas, which, oddly enough, there's now a market for. There didn't used to be, but there's now once again a market for novellas for Kindle and things of that nature. So I'm, I'm embarking upon that, and hopefully I'm going to get a regular pipeline of those going. But in between those, I'm going to go back to the Raving Lord Ox stories, as I sort of call them, because the main character is Lord Gregory Oxendine. So that's what I'm going to keep going back to in between everything else. 
When are you expecting to have a completed edit of your novel? Uh, it's the first one, so it's hard to say. I'm, I'm expecting it to take approximately two and a half forevers, and possibly also an eternity. Sounds reasonable. A lot of this right now, also what I'm sort of just management of my own processes and trying to figure out how to make time for everything. It's really tricky, especially for me. I have basically the ADD OCD cocktail. So a good portion of my time is wrestling my brain around to do the things I want to do. I don't know exactly how long it's going to take me to finally get the thing edited, or, or at least just the first pass editing, just to get a second draft out. I'm going to be sending it to a professional editor once that's at the, at the point that I think it's ready and it's had some beta reading and all that. And then you start looking for an agent at some point. I'm going to be trying to go the traditional publishing route with it first for at least like a year or two. And then after that, I might end up just doing direct to online publishing with that. Uh, in the meantime, while all that's going on, I'm planning to release a bunch of novellas. I have friends who make a living that way, and I'm going to try to get to that point. Oh, this is unexpected. The order also records that you are a maker of podcasts. So podcasting I did for quite a while. I've been podcasting since my, I think it's actually my 10th anniversary soon of being a podcaster. <laughs> I'm old. Uh, but uh, yeah, so I, I started podcasting in 2009, I believe it was. And uh, so then I sat down and did research and figured out how to do RSS, as in how to approach RSS, not how to actually write RSS, because I have no freaking clue to this day how to do that, but you know what tools are out there and how to use those tools. And so I did that and gradually moved on to other podcasts. I developed a bit of a podcasting problem. I have diagnosed the master with this affliction as well. He keeps fitfully murmuring ideas for new podcasts under his breath as he sleeps. Yep, yep, there it is. <laughs> Welcome. Congratulations and condolences. <laughs> there is no escape, no escape. I will inform the master of his certain and inexorable doom. Now, please clarify something for the record. I am familiar with the casting of magic, but what is this casting of ciphers? My friend David Brown, who was in a gaming group with me and knew that I did podcasting, he uh, approached me at one point and asked if I would help him set up a podcast focusing on Numenera, which I was kind of interested in. It, at that time, it was as the Kickstarter was getting ready to launch, and he had gotten really excited about it. Yeah, the original Numenera Kickstarter, yeah, at, at its inception. And um, so eventually we did with our friend Eric, and that resulted in Transmissions from the Ninth World. And then eventually I started thinking about all of the different things that Monty Cook Games was doing. And by that point, I was invested. And so I pitched the Cyphercast. It's all about whatever is generally coming out of Monty Cook Games. And uh, with more of an emphasis on Cypher, because the other podcast on our network, the wonderful Incantations. Incantations is fine, except for that Dave guy. Ha <laughs> ha. That was a joke. Carry on. I was already coming out and they were doing a brilliant job and I was like, okay, well, we can't possibly be that good, but we can take what we were doing and turn it into something just about Cypher in general. Oh, 17 hells. My cold, soulless intelligence is not equipped to handle this anomaly. Your entry in the order's register is overflowing its bounds. It reports you are also a maker of twitches. 
That doesn't even make sense. I give up. Most recently, I have been taking some of the uh, podcast projects that I've been doing and slowly started working them over to streaming. And so now we are doing the Cyphercast as a live stream on Twitch. And just a little bit prior to that, I had started streaming games as well because I just saw it happening and I desperately wanted to do that quite suddenly. And so I did. Douglas Adams once predicted this idea that society was going to move to many-to-many -many communication. This was before the World Wide Web was really heating up to the extent that it ended up heating up. I can't remember who it was that said that someday everyone's going to have their own talk show, but now it's happening. Anybody who wants to get a signal out of any kind, it's very much a thing where it's moving out that way. How did you get started? It was kind of intimidating at first to try to figure out how I was going to tackle it. I wanted to become familiar with both media, mediums, medioi, whatever language we're using right now. I wanted to be familiar with both ways of doing things, or I tried to sort of Frankenstein one into the other. I was starting to get burnout with the Cyphercast. It was getting to be really uh, a, a great chore to try to do and try to wrangle my wanting to do the writing stuff, and I, I was trying to get the novel done, and there was just things pulling at me from several directions. And so we kind of pulled back, and I was like, okay, we need to figure something out. We sort of took a hiatus, and one of the catalysts, and there were multiple ones for the move to Twitch, ultimately, which is what I'm about to get at, was that we had Darcy Ross on the show. She had been on some of our previous podcasts before, and so we, you know, we used to uh, communicate a lot with her before uh, she got really busy after being hired at MCG, and then also she's you know, getting closer to whatever endpoint she's going to ultimately reach with her education and what have you, as she is conquering all the snails on the planet. But we talked about how there is so much potential in Twitch at this point in terms of just connectivity with the audience. It is... Just kind of amazing. And we talked about sort of the Wild West factor that's out there right now where there's not a huge flood of people. I mean, there's a flood, but there's not a huge flood to, to the point that it's not navigable. That's the other sort of Wild West quality of it is that uh, the power grid isn't quite in yet. Um, <laughs> and so we're still figuring stuff out. But uh, this is also that you know, if you wait for the power grid to get built, then, you know, it's, uh, you, you may be uh, out in opportunities. One other catalyst was one of those streams that I ended up watching that was run on a channel on Twitch called Off the Table. It was a game being run by a gentleman by the name of Grant Ellis. My records state that he is a Visley of unfathomable power, a Twitch mage of the sixth degree. Which show was it? It was a, a setting uh, he calls Life on Mard, which is based in part on a work called The Dictionary of Mew. So seeing what Grant did with that game, just production-wise, he starts it off with everyone has a monologue. Also, the performances were great because they got some of the, uh, the most awesome players. Matt Mercer was in that game. There was an overlay, and it was all very pretty, and I was looking at it, and I was just like, my God, this, this is amazing. Just blew my mind. I'm an old theater guy, first off, and also being certified in broadcasting, and I saw some of the things being used there, and I'm like, okay, this is like people gaming in public who are doing this as an entertainment. People are watching. People are paying attention to it. And so that was all just sort of in the back of my head and sort of an incubator I was working. And then uh, in late July, I, I decided, okay, I need to actually start doing 
this Twitch thing to see kind of how it works. Just like I did when I got into podcasting, I stopped and I researched everything and okay, how do you do this? And what equipment do you use? And how do you get these programs to work? And you know, what makes each thing do each thing? And so a few months ago, I just sort of thought, okay, we could do the Cyphercast as a stream and I think it could work. And I realized also that part of what was bogging me down was one of the things that had previously been a boon, the greater sort of control over individual uh, tracks with the software we were using when we started the Cyphercast. I realized, no, I just need it all in one track. Otherwise, I'm going to sit here and meticulously do every tiniest thing forever. So I was like, okay, no, I'm just going to record this on OBS and I will strip the audio out and do it. And that has saved the podcast because it is so much easier. And it's not quite at the quality level that I had wanted it at originally, but at the same time, I, I was able to recover some sanity. So that was a very good thing. Please expound. How does casting Twitches at a live audience differ from casting pods? You've just really said one of the main things, which is the immediacy of it. I think that doing a podcast, in many ways, taking it live makes it easier, just in terms of not having to worry about as much as far as just uh, getting it right, because you're there, you're live, that's it, that's going to be the show, and you have to be happy with what goes out. There's feedback that's immediate, so if you're stuck, and you look over at chat and someone has said something interesting, you can immediately be like, ah, oh, well, this, uh, someone in chat has just said this. And, you know, the conversation can continue. I find it a very exciting way to do things still, a very interesting way. Comparatively, it's, it's not better or worse. I don't want to give that impression, but it does have an interesting effect on the process. In a fit of stoic, indifferent rage, I burned your incongruous entry in the registry of makers. I must apologize, but before I did so, I remember reading that you were also recorded as a maker of stage performances. How does this differ from Twitch Omancy? It is a very similar feeling, I do have to say. When you're doing a stage performance, it does feel as though the stakes are different. You're, yeah, you're part of this engine that is going. And if you stray off uh, and go in a direction that the other parts of the engine cannot adapt to, then the thing is going to break down and run the vehicle into a ditch. So there is that certain amount of excitement and adrenaline going on in a live stage performance in particular. The stuff that I have done on Twitch is more casual. It's a thing where we're playing a game, and it's very clear that we're playing a game. We don't always have to stay in character the whole time as though we were doing improvised theater. And I think actually, if we were, that it would not be... I, I, I think we actually would lose some of the connectivity. This is actually something that I've observed a little bit. We mentioned shows like Critical Role, very popular shows, where you have the people, it's usually there probably in California or somewhere where they just have a, uh, a multi-camera setup. They have really good production quality, but it becomes more like a television experience. When it gets to that point where you have the engine appearing, it becomes more about that particular engine than it does about the immediate interaction with the audience. You still know they're there. You still get the adrenaline. You still have the kind of feedback you get with those types of entertainment, which is awesome. But it isn't quite the many-to-many -many experience that smaller streams 
can achieve uh, where we have everyone who's like just remotely sitting there and they can all be in chat and be participating while it's going on. And again, it's there's no right or wrong way to do it at this point. Like we said before, it's very much Wild West. But you can see that the more you go in one direction, the harder it is to get that level of communication. How can people locate you in the new sphere or otherwise establish communication with you? Oh, yes. Well, we do uh, the CypherCast. It's uh, usually on the first Thursday of the month. Uh, we sometimes may have to adjust somewhat depending. That and all my other shows there are at twitch.tv slash otherdoc. That's O-T-H-E-R-D-O-C. But what I generally do there on Friday afternoons and Saturday mornings, I do video games on every other Saturday. We're right now playing a Dungeon World campaign using the Cold Ruins of Last Life setting where we're all undead. And every Sunday, I do a different one-shot of the various different game systems. We're going to be doing Cypher soon, in fact, as a series of one-shots coming up soon. The programming is about to expand somewhat further. I am looking at soon doing month-long weekly campaigns of different things. So short campaigns every month. And that will hopefully be starting in February. So we're going to be uh, kicking things up a notch next month, hopefully. Uh, it's it's, it's going to be awesome. I, I'm, I'm really hoping that uh, that this goes over well, and uh, I'm, I'm certainly going to enjoy it. And uh, yes, you can find my various projects, uh, links to my writings, my personal podcast, where I just do a bunch of uh, geek observation things at jim, yes, that jim.com. And I also have links there to a game sign-up. So whenever I open sign-ups for the one-shots that I do, I put them on the game sign-up page there as well, so folks can go if they want to see about diving in, get more information about the various one-shots that are coming up. I think that's about all I need in order to compile my report for the master. This interview is over, and good riddance. Thank you so much, and I just want to say it is awesome that you've been doing this show in this glorious hidden basement that uh, is about all the things that I enjoy without getting all those stares from Vizlai. Uh, it's, uh, it's really nice. Yes, that's, it's, it's, it's good to have a sweatpant protocol. I find pleasantries meaningless, but I am required to say, may you find freedom, my friend, from shadow. <laughs> Thank you, you too. Well, there you have it. A double feature. Thanks to Kate, Jim, and the Tulpa. Oh, I release you, by the way. May I never have need of you again for making this episode possible. I do want to talk a bit about what happened, why I disappeared, why I'm back, and what comes next. But first, I want to extend my thanks to Gamers Giving, not only for being an active and lovely part of the gaming community, which I'll talk about in a moment, but also for taking a risk on, and believing in me and in The Secret Seller. They've been sponsoring the show for a while now. You've heard me talk about their good work often in my ad reads. But they've now extended their sponsorship of the show to the entire coming year. I'm humbled that they see value in what I'm trying to create here, and I do hope you'll pay them a visit and look deeper into their work. Tell them the proprietor sent you. So, let me put on my ad read voice. Gamers Giving asks you to play games and give back. It's a 501c3 charity, but also a vibrant community of folks who love to play games of all kinds, and also love to help lift each other up. The internet is tragically full of gamers who gatekeep, exclude, troll, push other people down. 
Gamers Giving is the opposite of that. In real life, they have a huge library of games they make available to play for free at Denver area conventions. They gather donations and pool resources to help gamers who are going through hard times. Gifts of money, yes, but also organized acts of service. Online, they connect gamers of all stripes with open arms. So visit facebook.com gamersgiving and introduce yourself. Help out, donate if you can, welcome somebody. We're a weird, vibrant community. Let's take care of each other. Thank you to Gamers Giving for your generous, generous support of this show now and into the next year. All right, let's get into this. No script, just you, me, and a microphone. So I started this show almost a year ago, just about, not knowing for sure what I would think of podcasting, whether I would be any good at it, whether I would enjoy it, where it would lead. But I sort of promised myself that I would make six episodes and kind of see where it took me. It was really fun and good for me because I tend to be quite a perfectionist, and sometimes that's a wonderful thing, and sometimes it really holds me back because it keeps me from doing things unless I can do them up to my sometimes impossible standards. So it was really fun, actually, taking on this new project that I knew nothing about, podcasting, audio editing, setting up interviews with people. And it was kind of freeing in a way because, you know, I've spent my whole life as a graphic designer. I'm very familiar with all the sort of professional and creative aspects of that. But this was a new thing. And I didn't have to worry too much about perfection because I didn't even have that as a goal. It was more important to me at the time just to make something rather than to make it perfect. So I made it through six episodes didn't slow down, absolutely loved it, and kind of decided around that time that I wanted to get better at this, figure out how to make it a more normal part of my life, something a little more regular and a little more serious. By the time I got to episode 10 or 12 or so, I was feeling really good, maybe a little arrogant, maybe a little too sure of myself. So I had just been feeling like I've got all this down. I know how all this works. I can kind of do this more quickly and more efficiently than in the past and had started plans, which I actually mentioned in one of my uh, shows a while ago, to set up a Patreon and kind of start trying to make this a little more regular part of my life on a regular schedule, get just a little bit of money to help offset the time involved and maybe eventually make enough to hire an editor Around the same time, I decided to try a different approach to my order of operations. And rather than going through the process of setting up each episode, scheduling interviews, arranging for those conversations, and then doing all the editing and then putting the show together and then releasing it and then starting over, I thought, you know, why don't I record a bunch of episodes, a bunch of interviews with different folks? And then I have those available in the hopper to kind of work through as at my leisure and do all the editing on. So around Christmas time, I recorded several, several interviews, really lovely stuff. Some you've heard in past episodes, some you heard tonight, some are actually still out there waiting to, uh, to be published. But I recorded a bunch at a time. Some personal things kept me from immediately being able to work on them. But 
When I got back into it and started to do the editing, I realized that in fact, several of my interviews had not recorded. And then around the same time, I started hearing from some people that my RSS feed was broken and episodes were not showing up in my podcast stream. And I learned that entire podcast sources where I thought I had had my podcast syndicated were not actually showing the show at all. And kind of a combination of frustration with myself and sort of guilt, honestly, kept me from really digging in and and trying to figure out what to do with this. Suddenly going from feeling like I knew what I was doing to feeling like I was letting people down and feeling like I had no idea where to even start with editing the interviews you just heard tonight or fixing the RSS, which still isn't fixed, just kind of sent me into a little spiral of creative despair about this particular project. And so I just backed off from it and kind of couldn't find the time or energy or personal gusto to get back in and start figuring out what to do. So that's why I disappeared. Some of the personal pressures in life lightened up a little bit enough for me to kind of get back into this. I also had a few friends, you know who you are, who were very helpful in kind of talking me through the worst of it and getting me back on track. And then I sat down and and did all the editing work and got everything up and going. As far as where this goes next, I've now purchased some software that allows me to record both sides of an interview, both my own and also the incoming one that I'm recording locally on device as well, rather than always relying on the online service I've been using, which failed me. (laughs) And that should at least prevent this particular problem from happening again. And I'm also working out how I can set this on a more regular schedule. So I'm going to take this opportunity to sort of split seasons. I'm going to go figure out this RSS thing, and then I'm going to set up a season two of The Secret Seller. The season sponsored in its entirety by Gamers Giving. Again, thank you. And use this year two of The Secret Seller to kind of polish my craft with a focus on regularity and consistency. This may mean decreasing some of the quality of the editing in the episodes a little bit. I tend to be the type who edits and removes every little quirk from every bit of audio that I can find. And that is perhaps not worth it in terms of getting a good episode out, but I do still care about quality, so it'll be a balance. I have some other ideas and plans too, but I'm going to get this bit of it started, make sure that I can really do things on a regular basis, and then start talking to you about other future plans. So thank you again for your time, and thank you for your grace, and I look forward to bringing The Secret Seller to you in 2019 and beyond. Thank you so much for listening. Audio design for The Secret Seller is by Casey Ross. Invisible Sun is the intellectual property of Monticook Games, with whom Zeros.bar and Secret Seller are unaffiliated. May you find freedom, my friends, from Shadow.
If you didn't notice, my mind is very much on Invisible Sun right now. I am excited because at long last, my home game is starting up this week. For a variety of reasons, I was unable to start last year as I had intended. But the time is finally right, the players are ready, and we're going to be digging into Monty Cook's directed campaign. In coming episodes, I'll introduce you to the party. You know some of them already. Talbert, our maker, from episode 3. Molly, the painter, from episode 7, will be our new apostate, because sadly Aaron from episode 2 has moved out of state. <laughs> I'll also introduce a brief new segment with updates about what's happening in our campaign. I had a wonderful time GMing Invisible Sun online for Truth Bleeds at Twilight over the summer, but I cannot wait to play it at a table, face-to-face with all the riches of the Black Cube in support. Thank you again to Gamers Giving for their support of The Secret Cellar and of the gamers in their community. Visit them online at facebook.com gamersgiving. Audio design for The Secret Cellar is by Casey Ross. Invisible Sun is the intellectual property of Monty Cook Games, with whom Zeros.Bar and Secret Cellar are unaffiliated. May you find freedom, my friends, from shadow. Mm-hmm.